Hey, hey, hey! It's the Religious Studies Project. I'm David Robertson. I'm Christopher Cotter. And this week, we're delighted to bring you an interview with Marinda Simmons and Mike Altman, which was recorded by my good colleague Christopher Cotter. And uh, the subject is Reinventing Graduate Education in the Study of Religion. Reinventing Religious? It's almost like a book that came out recently. <laughs> Let's pass over to Chris. We spent quite a lot of time on the Religious Studies Project discussing religious studies as a discipline or field of study, what it means to study religion with or without quotation marks, and what exactly it is that the critical scholarly study of societal discourses surrounding religion might have to offer. However, up until today, we've never tackled head-on the institutional location of religious studies within a higher education environment that is becoming increasingly stretched and dominated by market forces and political whims. In particular, how might this situation affect graduate education in the study of religion? What can scholars of religion do about this situation? Are we powerless? Must we simply sit on the sidelines and stick to our guns? Or are there constructive alternative ways forward? To discuss these questions and an exciting new graduate programme looking at religion in culture, I'm joined today by Drs. Marinda Simmons and Michael Altman, who are both Associate Professors of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. Marinda's books include Changing the Subject, Writing Women Across the African Diaspora, and two co-edited volumes, The Trouble with Post-Blackness and Race and Displacement. She's the editor of the book series Concepts in the Study of Religion, Critical Primers, and is a member of the collaborative research group Culture on the Edge. Mike's research ranges from American religious history to critical theory. In his first book, Heathen Hindu, Hindu American Representations of India, 1721 to 1893, published by OUP in 2017. And he's also published an article in the journal Religion entitled Podcasting Religious Studies that features the Religious Studies Project. And we might even discuss that later on. Who knows? So first of all, Marinda, Mike, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Enjoy. <laughs> you gave me a free promotion there, Chris. I'm only an assistant professor. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, no. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. I'll take it. <laughs> you can take That's that. That's how That's good nice. the book is. That's right. <laughs> You get instant promotion when that happens. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Well, on that note, I mean that that's a, a institutional dynamic that uh, we don't quite know here in the UK. The <laughs> associate assistant. Uh, um, but um, we're talking today about reinventing graduate education in the study of religion. But um, why are we even talking about that? What's the context? I sort of laid it out a little bit there, but. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the conversations that we've been having over the past handful of years has been about um, what a lot of people call the, you know, crisis in the humanities. Um, so that's really what began the conversation here departmentally. We have a, um, a humanities speaker series that uh, our chair is on the committee for planning. Um, we've been doing some things within the department to try to talk about that issue. We also... Um, have been, you know, also again, like in the last handful of years, especially, um, kind of on the front end of 
social media in the department, making videos, um, doing all things to promote the department, because a lot of people don't come into their undergraduate programs anyway, knowing what the academic study of religion is. So we have to do a lot of like self-promotion and just getting the word out about what it is to even get a degree in religious studies. So with those two things in mind, with our social media presence and with the conversations that have been going on among our faculty about um, the so-called crisis of the humanities, that's really what began the conversation of well, what what would it look like if we don't like we don't want to think about the humanities as crisisville. We all have jobs in this space um, of of perceived crisis. So so maybe we should be thinking about that or doing something about that or, or what does it mean to reconceive that? So that that's a background for where the conversation initially began. Hmm. And just for the benefit of our, of our listeners who could be at any level, I mean, what, what is what that is crisis? crisis of, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Broad brushstroke. It's a, <laughs> I mean, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. It's, a shift. I mean, I, I I was introduced to this crisis through the 2008 financial crisis. That's when I I snuck into graduate school just before Emory's Emory University's endowment <laughs> tanked in 2008 in September. Mm. Um, and you know, you could just look around over the next two years and watch all the free lunches on campus literally go away. Um, and I think that moment of um, that financial moment and the impact it had on on jobs in the U.S. Uh, kind of created a bit of a panic about, well, if I'm going to spend money on a degree, if I'm going to spend time on a degree, especially at the undergraduate level where you had a financial crisis happening as a bubble was growing around higher ed and higher ed prices were going up, if I'm taking out all these student loans, I better damn well be able to get a job when it's over. And I think the idea that the humanities – because they were not uh, very vocational, um, didn't prepare one for that. I think became a long-standing discussion point and problem point since the 70s, really, um, uh, even more uh, acute. And so students came in. I, I think as I transitioned out of grad school into teaching in the past four years. Um, I've seen uh, these are all undergraduate students who went through who were in you know high school or middle school when this happened and they don't know a world that wasn't in financial uh, where financial anxiety wasn't dominant right I feel like you know I I grew up in a world dominated by terrorism fear they grew up in a world dominated by by banking and stock market fear I I mean I think that there's also I, um, at the same time there like when I came to grad school um, which was like in 2001 2002. Um, I was exposed to a kind of generational shift from uh, the faculty perspective where I, I think the reason that the, the again, this, this so-called crisis is resonating for academics themselves is, is that there was also a kind of sea change from a faculty perspective and from an academics perspective about what it meant to study the humanities suddenly in response to these kinds of economic factors and the sorts of anxieties about job markets that our students were um, grappling with, 
suddenly it didn't make as much sense to approach one's teaching and one's research in quite the same sort of classic model of, you know, I know all, I will tell all, come learn at my feet and Mm -hmm. then take this knowledge to, and, you know, do whatever, but that's your thing to process later. And it's not really so much my jam as your faculty advisor. So, you know, in response to that shifting landscape, too, I think that there's been um, within people who already have jobs and who are trying to kind of get a sense of what they're doing as faculty within the humanities and scholars in the humanities, what it is that our job is, because it doesn't seem like it's quite so much um the same sort of just receptacles of knowledge that we dispense <laughs> nebulously to yes. people um, and then just take that as self-evidently important yeah. um, as some kind of service that we're doing them. Yeah, for better or worse, the sort of self-evidence yeah. of the value of humanities research isn't taken for granted anymore. That's, right. And and, that, and so that's a thing for students who want to go get jobs have to grapple with. But then it's also a thing for the, you know, those of us doing research in the humanities to also kind of start reconceiving as well. So, you know, into that space, enter cutting edge new grad program. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. And that that really does. um it scans quite well with uh, my impression of things here in the UK, where uh, we certainly don't have. um uh, college fees to quite the same level as you have right. there in the states but uh, when i started uh, as an undergrad you were talking just about a thousand pounds a year and now it's gone up to nine thousand pounds a year uh-huh. in that length of time so there's a real yeah a, a shift towards okay what am i going to get out of this sure. students as consumers um and also the perceived value of, well, a degree in study in religion, that's mm-hmm. kind of, that's near the bottom of the pile in terms of monetization, isn't it? No. Um, but, but, not need it all be doom and gloom. Need it all be doom and gloom. Um, so um, you've been, um, well, first of all, um, before we talk about your graduate program, um, graduate students are going to be slightly different to um, undergraduate students. So again, maybe if you just tell us a little bit about about that dynamic um, and then let's see what you've been doing. Um, different. You mean you mean just like how what do we conceive of as our um, as our student cohort coming in or like the. Yeah, um, the, the general sort of purposes of of graduate school. Um, uh, oh, oh gotcha. that's a Yeah, that's a. <laughs> That's a whole bee's nest of questions. I mean, there's like a whole – I mean, there's an ongoing argument in the U.S. about graduate school. There was an article yesterday in the Chronicle or this week about basically wagging its finger at literature professors around the country saying your entire career is built on the exploitation of, of graduate students. Um, and yet at the same time, when I – God, I've become such a reactionary old man at the age of 32. <laughs> but like, you're getting paid to go to school in mo- in lots of cases. I mean, yeah, don't take a. I mean, but so there's a whole back and forth um, about graduate school and 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 there's a whole conflation of different programs and the way they rely on under on graduate student labor to teach large classes, which keeps costs down and 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 and, but, and buttresses the explosion of administrations and administrative costs so like there's a whole uh there's a lot a big argument going on about the value the importance the ethics of graduate education in the US um that i think 
we're trying to navigate mm-hmm. and we've thought hard about. Like, I, I mean, I would, I want people to know, I think the committee who's been working on this, both from the proposal level all the way now to the implementation t- took those concerns very seriously. Mm-hmm. But they're very real and they're very thorny, I think. I mean, Mike and I were just talking about this earlier. You know, um, I think before um, before the economy changed so dramatically, um, there was a sense that education and more of it was just a net gain. Mm -hmm. You know, education is an end in itself. It is always a good um, the more you get of it, the more it will um, enrich your life or pay you back monetarily or just just be this kind of net gain to pursue. Um, and I and I do think that the like, I mean, as we've been already discussing, you know, those dynamics have shifted a bit. Um, but I but I don't think that um, that means that just because students are interested in making sure that they try to at least stack the odds for some kind of professional return on their investment that they leave their BA programs um, without still this kind of sense of like, I don't know necessarily if I have this very specific career path set out ahead of me. Um, I still am interested in all of these ideas that I've only just barely been exposed to. What do I want to do with those? Is there a space for me to continue to think about things in more depth? So, you know, I I, I don't want there to be a kind of um, mutually exclusive sort of antagonistic relationship between um, professional security or job sensibility on one hand and intellectual curiosity on the other. Um, and so so our sense was, uh, you know, one approach from academia, I think, in a lot of ways has been to sort of um, stake its flag in like and just sort of yes. double down on like, no, yes. what we study is super important. Um, did you hear? I, I'll say it louder for the kids in the back. It is super important. Um, and, or on the other side, they just turn into a kind of um, profit machine, which I think mm-hmm. results in the um, and maybe those two things work together. I don't know that those are even two sides of the same coin. Maybe they're the same thing. Um, but so so there's this kind of exploitive factory of of grad student labor on one hand and contingent adjunct labor that even spreads into the faculty arena. Um, but there's also, I think, a, a um, there's been an ongoing Failure, I think, is not too strong a word um, on behalf of academicians to rethink and retool why it is what we study matters and why that should translate to student interest and to and to the lives that they're living, because their interest is (laughs) does not live and die with their intellectual pursuits inside of that classroom. It's also about the lives that they want to live. It's also about the jobs they want to have or the place they want to live. Um, It's geographical concerns. It's family concerns. It's all sorts of different kinds of things. And so to, to try to um, think seriously about all of those issues. uh, Yeah. Is, is, is the job for people in the humanities in the 21st century now. Mm. Excellent. So that's set a really good, set a really good scene. So um, your de- your department is your department called religion in culture, or is it is it the um, I know that that's quite a thing at Alabama. 
Yeah, with the italics on the end. <laughs> Got to have the... We have a web page explaining our approach to that. Yeah. Um, no, the, the department is the Department of Religious Studies, but when we came up with the master's... I don't know who had the idea. I think it was on an email. We went back and forth about it, yeah. Um, we decided that to just call it uh, the MA in Religion and Culture. And it's not quite, I mean, you know, it, I, my PhD is is uh, from an English department. Uh, another colleague's um, uh, PhD is from an anthropology department. We come at the study of religion from a lot of different disciplinary angles. Mm-hmm. And we knew that this wasn't going to be a traditional religious studies degree as it kind of gets popularly conceived still in the academy. Um but we also wanted to establish it as an intervention into that field where a lot of us still mm. do have a great deal of stake. Um, but it's not quite cultural studies. We didn't want to go completely off the grid. But so it's it's our attempt at kind of, you know, charting out a specific path within a field that we all still, you know, have, have a great deal of stock in. And so um, you're approaching it sort of with two broad strands then, social theory and digital humanities. Um, why, 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 the, why those choices? I'll, I'll, I'll pitch this one to Mike with a little bit of background because he's one of our uh, resident digital humanities gurus. <laughs> um, but, but for me, you know, again, with, with, a, with a background and training in literary theory, the reason I'm in a religious studies department is because of a commitment to social theory and questions about identity studies um, um, and, and, and a kind of critical theory analytic that's operative in a lot of my work. And so um, so the department has a longstanding commitment to thinking uh, broadly about why it is that we study what we study rather than you know, just kind of landing upon the self-evidency of, of why what we do matters. Um, so in that sense, um, social theory has been something that we've been already um, flexing our muscles with for, for quite a number of years. Um, and But again, then we also kind of just got into the social media thing. It started with just... Um, you know, uh, advertising events on campus through Facebook and then having a Facebook page for our student association. But then our students started writing blog posts and then, well, maybe yeah. we should have a blog. And then, so we, we were, um, mm. so the, the grad degree is emphasizing two strengths that we already had. We're not inventing a new either of these two platforms, but, but it is, especially for me, who's, um, who still is, uh, you know, relatively new to the digital humanity scene, um, taking it in a in a kind of new and more substantive direction, especially with with the public humanities bit, which is which is then my yeah, <laughs> my I, mean, pitch I, to I, I think of it as really the two strengths of the department, um, and I think for a long time because of Rinda's work and Stephen Ramey's work and Russell McCutcheon's work, our department has been known for its theoretical rigor theoretical swagger i like to think of it as um and so i think that's manifest in this program like if you're a student and you don't want to be hemmed in by the same school of religious theorists uh or if you even are even thinking about religious theories if you don't be hemmed in by a content area um then that's sort of what we've 
envisioned, you know, beginning with this, one of the two classes students take, one of the, one of the first classes students take in this program is a, is this foundations course in social theory and they get introduced to a whole bunch of social theories. This is something Miranda's helped develop with Stephen Ramey. Um, and she can say more about that. But then the other side, I think people have known less until the past couple of years. It's sort of blossomed is like we were, we had, we were one of the first departments to really utilize a website and to do all sorts of things. I mean, back in the day when before, before cell phone cameras, they were, I wasn't here. I was, I was, I don't know what I was doing, but I was in high school. Um, they were scanning, they were taking photographs at events and scanning them and putting them up on the webpage. And they were, I say they, it was Russell and, and the yeah. faculty that were there then, Russell McCutcheon sort of. And so that website predates Facebook. There was no Facebook, mm-hmm. but we had this website that has, and it's, um, it's actually about to get a facelift, um, soon, but the, uh, uh, the you can go look at the archives of all this old stuff that we have buried in that website if you're really interested in the. And I mean, the well, and so much of that is again like this this sense of trying to um, tell students what it is that we do in this department because you know so yeah. often they come out of high school without a sense of what religious studies as this kind of academic space is, and so I think that there is this. Um, hard work of of just self-awareness, but then self-promotion and advertising that a department like ours has to do. And so since we've been doing that for so long already, um, and since we have this analytical, you know, approach by and large, um, how do we make the most of both of those two things? Yeah. And, and, and so the website gave way to Facebook, gave way to uh, the blog that came that was invented under Ted Trost, and he was chaired to pump what began as a promotion of a humanities the humanities series on campus, but then became this blog that um, is now read internationally, and people actually send us guest posts uh, because and and I think it's become a pretty interesting space in the field. Uh, I, I mean, I'm a little biased, but um, and and now the, our Twitter feed is doing really well, and we have an Instagram, and so there's. Um, we've done all sorts of videos. And so this is sort of, I look at this as the next step in both those aspects of the department that have been going for the past 12, 13 years, 10, 12 years. Um, and, and actually I think they, I just, uh, we have a podcast coming up soon of our own, um, that I was just talking to Russell McCutcheon on the, uh, as I was recording that, uh, and there's a great interview with him where he talks about this. And the way that actually the two are more connected than you think, like we, we posit them as, you know, there's going to be a foundations class in social theory and then a foundations class in sort of public humanities and digital methods um, that I'm, I'm put together with Nathan Lowen. Um, and but they, they work together because really all the stuff we've begun to do in the social media space on the website is is just applying social theory to our own environment. Like, why do we have a blog? Because getting students to write little pieces and see them creates a sense of it's Durkheim. <laughs> like we're just like right. like we 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 ought to know. I mean, academics who study religion from a kind of social theory, social sciences, whatever human science perspective, ought to be really good at understanding how to form a tight social group. That's what we're studying. That's the things we're talking about. <laughs> um, and we've kind of taken that seriously in a way. And so there's a way that these two things feed off one another mm-hmm. and have in the in the life of the department. And now we're kind of sending that. Uh, that momentum spinning forward into this graduate program. It also means that the kinds of, you know, so their thesis, their culminating thesis project can be a traditional 
um, you know, publishable academic work that will, you know, send them to, uh, you know, a, a, a PhD program of their choice or, or into a different kind of academic arena. But they can also, for uh, their thesis requirement, do a digital project um, of, of equal substantive weight and value. And so thinking seriously about what that looks like and what that means, how to make them marketable, um, not just in relation to how they can talk about themselves and their own skill sets, which I think is just, just such a, um, such a thing that, that grad students, uh, could could use um, because I think that a lot of them with all of these kinds of critical skills, writing skills, editing skills, argumentative skills can only really talk about themselves or think about themselves in relation to the professoriate, um, which I think is a shame because I think that those skills are super marketable and very much in demand across a lot of different kinds of job sectors. Um, so not only will they be able to talk about themselves and think about their skills differently, um, but also will like have a thing in hand that they can go um, to a museum mm. with or to a nonprofit with or to academic publishing or a, a startup a startup yeah. or what. I mean, you know, whatever kind of um, and, and, and to, to help them get creative about where they can take those skills and something, you know, equipped with something that isn't. Um, just a, you know, I, I have this killer essay um, that makes this yeah. amazing critical intervention. So they can they can do both. Just we're, we've been nattering away here, and time is time is already running away with this. Um, this sounds fantastic, and it sounds um, sort of right in the same ballpark as why we started the religious studies project right. five years ago to try and. Um, to try and find a way to to get academia out there right. um, in a more accessible form, but um, two questions, Bill, just to maybe finish with. Um, one would be, um, so you you know, stereotypical student wants to come and do a master's in the study of religion and they find themselves getting social theory, digital humanities. Um, I can well imagine based on. Um, some uh, experiences that I've um, encountered um, a sort of jarring sense of where's the religion here? I just wanted to study. <laughs> sure, sure. So that's, that's one side. And then the other question is um, it sounds like you've got a really um, supportive um, department uh, and university there. I, I can imagine in a perhaps more, uh, I'll use the word like straight laced or traditional mm -hmm. university that you might meet some resistance mm -hmm. um, to um, proposing mm -hmm. a course of this nature. So um, what advice might you have for um, scholars of religion who are trying to um, are working within the same context as you and trying to instill the same sort of sense of excitement and career <laughs> development into their students, but maybe can't quite found this innovative course. So there's one on the one mm -hmm. hand, the uh, where's the religion and two um, advice for um, 
others in different contexts? Well, I mean, to the first, there, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, we are still a department of religious studies and can still call ourselves that, right? So whatever kind of nominal traction we have to make ourselves legible in a field called religious studies um, is is still present in the kinds of um, uh, faculty areas and research that we do. Our approach is different, though, um, in relation to to how it is that we um, think about the importance of the question of Hindus and American religion or whatever kind of or, or um, a colleague who studies, um, you know, global uh, Christianity and, and glo- the spreads of global Christianities in the in the global south and um, and Japan migration. And so, I mean, like we have areas of the world and, and traditions that uh, we use as data sets. There is still, um, you know, uh, levels of of study that people can kind of come into and and get that sort of traction if they want to do that, especially if they want to go on to have an even more focused approach with that with their PhD. Um, they have the opportunity to do language study while they're here within the master's program. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, it, it is it is right that, you know, someone who's coming into our program is probably not satisfied with thinking about, um you know, a, a specific uh, group of, uh, you know, ritual practitioners mm-hmm. in the 18th century from this space who and, and, and then kind of like leave their inquiry to kind of live and die inside of that space. Yeah. So and yeah, yeah. and given the uh, given the what you're already saying about your blog, your social media presence, etc. It's going to be quite unlikely that a grad student is going to turn up on the door right. uh, not knowing what goes on. <laughs> right. Well, no, you should certainly know that. Yeah, they should certainly know they're getting themselves into. I mean, but it, but I do think it deserves to be said that this is still a for those people who are really still diehard interested in getting a PhD in religious studies. Um, as long as they think that that approach is kind of cool. This is still something that will, um, you know, still position, put them in a really nice position. And if, and, and I think if anything, make their application stand out because they do have this other little edge to it. I I think to be completely honest, I think that we will make our, our students coming out of here will be better prepared for more traditional PhD programs because our program will require them to go back to first questions that, Mm. that take it, that from the big, like we said earlier, that take it for granted that your study of, uh, Vedic sacrifice and it is valuable just because it's about something really old and uh, <laughs> not that that it is inherently valuable. We that's not we're, you're going to be pushed to be able to a articulate what is it about your study of ancient Vedic sacrifice that has purchased for larger theories about social formation, ritual, the way communities work, the way people think, the way texts are passed down, like whatever, something, something bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and that emphasis will make you, I, it'll allow you, if when you go to a PhD program and beyond, when you go on the job market later, to talk to people outside of your super small specialty in a way that will make you a better scholar. And I think that's exactly the answer, too, that I would suggest for the second part of your question, Chris, about mm-hmm. why you know, what this suggests to scholars implicitly in the field, because I think that there um, is a, is a way in which the field itself as a, as a disciplinary phenomenon can also kind of be taken for granted as a self-evident 
deeply important thing. <laughs> of and, course, religion is important. Right. And, and just because we've been studying it um, in these ways for these many years, this is what we should continue to do. Or because the field is so dominated by area studies um, and continues to be dominated by area studies and descriptive ethnographies, um, that that's how we should continue to approach our work. And I and I and I think that our our program is is a um, experiment in thinking otherwise about that and really putting um, our programmatic money where our mouths are in terms of um, thinking differently about how we could conceive this field because it's there's there's a lot of different directions it can take and 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 why do we need to think in classic terms about area studies um, because because then why should we win the you know, um, battle over how to get grad students who would otherwise go into a history grad program or a cultural studies, but, or an anthropology or, you know, why go into religious studies? Um, and so I think that this is, is also a way for scholars, um, and, and faculty members and administrators to think about how to organize differently around, um, the kinds of area studies that they have. Um, and, and how to make more marketable students coming out of those programs in the process. And I mean, I want to underline, you asked the question, the second question about how did we, how are we able to sort of do this and the support at the risk of sounding too peripheral? Uh, you know, I think we have had a lot of support from the College of Arts and Sciences here at the university. And I think that's because we've shown that the approaches we've chosen work in other settings. We've been out in front of other departments um, in a lot of ways with the blog and the social media and, and a number of, a number of different projects that we've done that I think have sort of pushed everyone in the college in a way. And so that's given us a certain amount of, um, I think institutional capital that has opened the door for this. And I think part of that is because we haven't taken for granted that we're valuable and we've been, and the the flip side is I think we're the hardest working department of the country where we're incredibly productive (laughs) Pound for pound, and um, I mean that's enough bragging. But I, I well, and I, I will say our our dean of the College of Arts and Sciences is a mathematician who is nonetheless deeply invested in the humanities, and that's um, just just so so nice. Yeah, <laughs> it's just really nice. So effectively, get out there, em- embody what you want the field to be if you want to be relevant get out there and make yourselves relevant that's probably a a good kind of rallying call Um, the entrepreneur the entrepreneurism we want in our master students has been modeled by this department for the past 10 to 12 years and interestingly not i mean i know you're probably trying to close this down but like it's it's a um because it sounded like a nice you know kind of like and scene um and scene but like only very quickly that I mean, this is this is why social theory, I think, is so useful too, to make that um, entrepreneurial vein of of professional emphasis not become some super problematic. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, kiddos. <laughs> and if you just try hard enough, you'll get that job in blah, blah, blah. Like, no, we're thinking really seriously about structural dynamics, about power dynamics, about the kinds of economic underpinnings that create certain sorts of environments that allow you to take various modes of agency in different kinds of spaces. And I and I think that that's also super important because I think it can be really disheartening as a grad student to hear the equation of, 
if you just try hard and if you just publish enough, you'll get that job because that's just so not anymore the case. Yeah. I mean, it, it, again, I mean, scholars of large institutions and social formations ought to be really good at navigating the university bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, um, thanks so much, Rinda Simmons and Mike Altman, for joining us. And hopefully um, you will both uh, get some uh, signups for this course. Yeah. This Applications podcast, are open now. Applications are open now. <laughs> you've also given our listeners um, a lot of food for thought and a lot of inspiration and hopefully and we'll have a couple of interesting responses to this that's what our fingers crossed um, afterwards thanks for talking um, with us thanks Chris thanks so much for joining us thank thanks, you Chris. no bother well listeners that was a very enjoyable interview for me to record over the wonders of Skype um, with um, some excellent microphones I think at, at both ends there hopefully you've enjoyed that everyone Um Hopefully you enjoyed it. It was a a good sales pitch um, for that course at um, Alabama. And I know that we are also, as I mentioned in the interview um, at Edinburgh, been involved in a, a good bit of discussion about, you know, the sort of post-grad masters, particularly in religious studies and, and what that might mean, what student expectations are and what the purpose of it is. Um and the part of my job at the OU now is is thinking about these kind of things and using um, these emergent technologies mm. um, to better facilitate community and discussion and different forms of education. Exactly. And, you know, we can only sit for so much of the time going, you just don't understand what religious studies is meant to be. And uh, you can only sit on the sidelines crying that um, for so long before you go, actually, what are people wanting from a degree and how can we how can we make it yeah work? absolutely and this is this has been a central uh concern of ours since um you know since before we even started the project was you know how can this be useful for education there were people doing podcasts um before us uh and there were people talking about using them in education in fact, there was people making them for educate but it was actually thinking about both how can you make these work together how can you make that format perfectly or, you know, better work for educating, not perfect, uh, uh, not that arrogant. Um, you know, how can we make this format work with education to, and so that, 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 you know, and improve educate, not, not as a bolt on extra mm. that ticks some boxes in your public outreach, but actually using it to improve um, education and student engagement. Um, so, you know, that's close to our hearts. Absolutely. So thanks so much um, for making that happen. And a big shout out to um, Daddy McCutcheon um, for facilitating that, um, setting that up as well. It was really good. And that's that's Russell to his friends. Yes. <laughs> um, sort of lurking across religious studies like a you know puppet master pulling strings behind the, the scenes. Pay, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> that is... Excellent. Um, we're 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 getting a bit giddy here, folks. That's that's the way we like it. That's the way we like yeah, it. Yeah, we're right in the middle of of essay marking. So, mm, well, yes, or supposed to be. <laughs> um, next week, um, it's another interview from RSP legend Thomas J. The Voice Coleman the Third, um, and he's been speaking to Luke Galen. Um, he's been on the RSP before. And the topic of the interview is misplaced faith, question mark, a theory of supernatural belief as misattribution. 
Um, so wow. that should be uh, quite interesting, and I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about after that. Um, so come back for that. Come back for the response. Check out our Opportunities Digest. Check out all our social media feeds. And if you do want to uh, help support the project, you can through our various Amazon links that are listed on the website. And a big shout out to our sponsors, of course. Who are they, David? They are the BASR, the NAASR, and the IAHR. Never has there been so much R (laughs) in one section of podcast. We thank you all, and we thank you, the listener, for listening. Mm